Et maintenant, The Return of the Popular 1970s Sitcom, The Auditorium Couple. I'm home. Ooh, what is that smell? Oh, what have I trod in? Oh, I'll kill that Bob Flanagan next door. He's looking after his father's little shih tzus again this week, and they're always leaving dog mess all over the pavement. Fear not, my dear doctor. I saw bad Bob this morning, and sad to relate, he was indulging in his favourite sport yesterday, and there was a tragic accident. When will people learn that base jumping and dogs just don't mix? So what you're saying is... Yeah, yeah, his dog's dead. No, no, his, his dad's dog's dead. Whose dog? Bad Bob. Oh, of course, yes, that's what I'm saying. His dog's dead. So you're saying what, Bad Bob's dad's dog's dead? Oh, his dog's dad's dead. No, his dead's dog's dad. No, yes, Bad Bob's dog's dad's dead. So what is that terrible smell? Oh, that, my friend, is baked epoises, my new favourite dish from La Belle France. I must admit, it's a bit whiffy. I'll open the window. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> do you notice anything different about me? You've put on four stone. Uh, no. Well, may we, b- but no. Your flies are undone. Oh, la la. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and? Uh, you've got one of those inexplicable white stains again. Yeah, all right, you... all right. We, we, and? Uh... Oh, stone me, Bramwell. Oh, 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 hang on. Is it? You've got a huge twirly moustache, you're wearing a Breton shirt and culotte, sporting a red beret, clutching a baguette and riding a bicycle indoors. May we, d'accord. Well, come on, Mountfield, what's going on? Ah, you know that girl from the hipster cafe, yeah, whatever, in town? Oh, my God, the cute Belgian one. She's coming out for a date, right? <laughs> she certainly is. And with my little touches, what can possibly go wrong? Oh, hang on. Did you say she was Belgian? Yeah, she's Belgian. And you know how much the Belgians dislike the French? It's like mistaking a Canadian for a Yank or your grandmother for Grayson Perry. They really hate that. Oh, my God. What can I do? I'm dressed as a French stereotype and she'll be here in five minutes. I'll never get me jollies. If you want my advice, light a joystick, phone for a takeaway and get that clobber off sharpish. The best way to impress a Belgian is go au naturel. They're big on naturism over there. She'll think you're really progressive. She'll definitely want to sleep with you. Really? Trust me, never fails. But I still don't know anything about Belgium. Nothing much to know. They've got Tintin, they invented the saxophone. Oh, and the national symbol is the apple. That's about it. Apple, right, right. I'll offer a nice juicy red one when she comes to the door. Pass me one from the kitchen. Here she is. Wish me luck. Greetings, my beauty. Yes, I'm naked. I've no shame. May I tempt you with this shiny red... Oh, uh, hello, Vicar. What? <laughs> How dare you? Sodomizer? Temptress? Beelzebub? Spawn of Satan. Oh, no, 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 Vicar, I promise you, uh, it's not how it looks. Let, let me explain. No, 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 don't explain, old boy. Where do you want me? Um, uh, oh, uh... I've got nothing on underneath this cassock. Down with romance, right? Down with romance, down with romance languages, down with romance languages messing up our English. That's what I've got to say. Down with French. Because French is a nice English word for romance. 
So I want to look sort of first at the scale of this problem. The extent of, of, of romance languages in English is, is pretty great. So people estimate 60 to 75% of English vocabulary, depending on how you count it, comes from Latin, French, other romance languages, mostly French or Latin through French. And I want to argue that it's bad, and we should get rid of it. And I'm only going to be 74% facetious in my argument. So we should get rid of it to be more English, <laughs> to be more democratic, and to get even. So here's, here's England, here's the British Isles um, in about 600 AD. And what we can see here is... is the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes have come over from what's now Denmark and northwestern Germany, and they've mostly taken over what's now England. Okay? And they really took it over linguistically. So before that, there were, the Romans had been here, the Celts were here. The Celtic languages got pushed to the west, okay? but not necessarily the people. Um, the people may still have been there. It looks like they were, but, but the languages just sort of got pushed. Okay? These were very strong languages taking over for, in this space, and they, they built into what became Old English, or which is sometimes called Anglo-Saxon. Then the, the Vikings came along, bothered the North a bit, brought in some Old Norse words, right? And then the Normans came along, the Norman French, who were actually Scandinavian, but they spoke a Romance language. And so they came in 1066, you know that, because they came to Sussex. And you might say, okay, well, you say 60 to 75% of our vocabulary is from French, but, you know, not the important words, not the words we really need, right? Just fancy words like submarine, right? <laughs> This is, this is, I don't know if you've seen, uh, the bottom's cut off, but this is a, a page out of, or two pages out of Randall Monroe's Thing Explainer, which is a new book, where he explains complex things using just pictures and the thousand most common words in the English language. So we don't have submarine, we have boat goes under the sea, right? And, and he does pretty well with that, but you start looking a little bit deeper and these are not all of the thousand, I had to end at S, but these are a lot of the words that come into that thousand most common words in the English language. And all the yellow ones came from French or, or Latin. Okay, the green ones we're not quite sure about. The one gray one comes from Greek. So, um, so if you see, we've got, we've got a lot of really basic ideas that we express using French, like because, like age, you know, all sorts of really, really basic ideas that we've lost the, the way to talk about using English English, okay? So, and so we've completely lost that word. We can no longer talk about our faces using Anglo-Saxon words. And how does that happen, that you lose the way to talk about your face, okay? How do you lose the way to talk about your family? I mean, we use the word kin a little bit now, but not too much. And, you know, your nation or your country, all of these really basic ideas got taken over by, by French words. And you might think, well, that's fair enough, because the French came over here, right? They're us now, too. Right? We're, we're a mixed-up French-Germanic kind of country, except you're not. Because when they did a DNA study of people in the UK, there was no evidence of the Norman French. 
they came, they conquered, and then, you know, they mated with other royalty from around, the, uh, around Europe. They didn't get, get involved here. They just, they, just, they just made us have our, their language and uh, took, over, took over the land. So, you've, you know, so this uh, red bit there, still mostly Germanic um, blood. And what it says, or DNA, what it says down here is that there is, we do share 45% of the relevant DNA. I mean, we share 95% of our DNA with chimpanzees, right? So, but we share 45% of the, the DNA that they studied in this study with the French. But that comes from um, migrations 10,000 years ago during the Ice Age. So the Normans and the Vikings left no real genetic footprint in, uh, in England. They just took everything, right? So 20 years after they landed in 1066, only 5% of the land recorded in the Domesday Book was, was still held by English people. They took the land, they forced the English nobles into Europe, and, and all, of, all of the language used in the court became French. And that meant that all the writing that was being done in English was being done by people who spoke French. Okay, so the Normans were making a real mess out of English spelling. So if you want to ba- blame anyone for English spelling, blame the Normans because they got rid of our cool letters, like thorn and eth and ash. And they, they introduced all those H's um, in combination to make um, different consonant sounds, because they didn't have those consonant sounds. So they had to make up a way to say them. They didn't like the English way of saying them. They, anytime you see an O-U in English, it's pretty much definitely put there by Norman people or people copying Norman people. Okay, and then as I said, we've lost a lot of words um, from Old English that got taken over by French words, but in other cases, we've had a a division of the words. So it used to be in Old English times that people ate pig, they ate ox flesh, they ate sheep, but now, of course, the French words... Now, these were not the French words for food. These were the French words for the animals. The words for the animals came in, and they became the word for the meat, Right? So the easy way to remember this is that if it's in shit, it's English, and if it's in sauce, it's French. Right? (laughs) So that's just showing there. It's, it's, It's oppression. It is. And what's happened in England is people are just lapping it up. They're saying, oppress me some more. Take away my language some more. They've become linguistic macaroni, linguistic dandies who want to put on the dress of fancy French words and, um, and, and leave behind the nice plain old peasant words, okay? And so we see this continuing on way after the Normans left with people making French, more French ways to say things, okay? You had a word eggplant, you went for aubergine because that's so easy to spell, you know? When there was a debate about how to pronounce the word sedual, when it's, when it's uh, spelling changed, you went the French way. Um, putting, I meant to put another word there, putting O-U in words that have nothing to do with French, okay? Like mold and smolder and glamour and arbor. Those didn't come from French, but they've ended up with this French O-U spelling, taking the I-Z-E and turning it into I-S-E. I've said in a talk before here that that's a pretty recent fad in England, and it makes it look more French. Okay? 
spelling program with a double M-E, that's a 19th century thing in England. Okay, so I want to say let's free ourselves from that because that's the language of the aristocrats. That's not the language of us, the people. People power. Let's get rid of the French. Let's go back to all of the great Teutonic language. So I want to talk a little bit about a few of my Anglo-Saxon heroes. Um, Samuel Johnson, um, who wrote the first most important dictionary of English, you know, he's, he worried in the preface to the dictionary that English is departing from its Teutonic character um, and deviating toward a Gallic structure, and we should try to take it back from the French. Now, he was pretty bad at that, <laughs> right? And I don't actually forgive him much. He's not really one of my heroes because he's responsible for a lot of the really Frenchish spellings in English being standardized. Um, he, he could have taken out those O-U-R's, he didn't. And he also put in a lot of Latin words in his dictionary that people at the time made fun of him for putting in because they're like, nobody actually says that. Um, but he put in a lot of that. Charles Dickens, moving up to the Victorians. In the Victorian times, there was a big um, fad for being interested in Anglo-Saxon things and to, ex please excuse the expression, romanticizing the, uh, the Anglo-Saxons. And Dickens was one of the people who argued, yeah, we, we should be going back and using Saxon words. He was a bit patronizing about it. He's, you know, sort of saying, we should use more Saxon words so that the common people can understand us. Um, but I say it's not because the common people can't understand anybody that we shouldn't use the Saxon, or we shouldn't use the French words. It's because, you know, the Saxon words are better. But again, he wasn't that great at it. Although a lot of his, you know, really famous lines, like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, he, there he's um, exercising that principle. But I want to get to my real hero, um, another Victorian named William Barnes. And he was a priest and a poet. He lived in Dorset, and he wrote a lot in Dorset dialect. He also wrote a grammar of English in which he tried to promote um, the idea that we should become, you know, get away from the needless inbringing of, of romance words. Not unnecessary import needless inbringing. He's my hero. And, and so he provided a lot of translations that could conveniently be used to replace um, Latin, French, and Greek words in English. Um, so for one, you know, this girl might be genuflecting, she might be curtsying, or she might be knee-bowing. <laughs> right? That makes sense. Um, this is my favorite one. You could call it the horizon, but isn't it more poetic to call it the sky sill? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, because, you know, we, we're getting back to our Teutonic roots, there is a lot of compound words, um, like in German, in uh, Barnes's suggestion. And they're often joined by this thing, which we will call a tie stroke, right? Um, but this is one of my favorites. Um, I, I haven't, he didn't translate all the words that need translating here, but he did translate one. Loosen some. <laughs> Have some loosen some tablets. Um, so he was a, I, I love him, okay? He's my hero. But then coming into the 20th century, we've got Paul Jennings, a humorist writing in Punch, who for the 900th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings, um, wrote a series of articles with the, the premise that the French hadn't won, 
All right, what would England be like now if, if the English had won the Battle of Hastings? And uh, he, in, this, um, in one of these pieces, introduced the word English to be the name of modern English that hadn't had French influence. Okay, and, and even though he was writing a humorous piece, people took that a bit seriously. Um, he wasn't perfect. He, he missed a few of his, of his Frenchisms, but um, people took it as, as a challenge and an inspiration. And this is Paul Anderson. He was a, uh, an American science fiction author, and he, he tried writing a piece in English. Um, d- does anybody know this piece? Do you know what unclefftish beholding is? Atomic theory. Okay, so an atom is an uncleft. First bits are the protons. Neither bits are the neutrons. Same studs are the isotopes. Okay, it's, it's, it's a lovely piece of work. And, and that's the thing. The, these are the things that, that people are drawn to to try to translate, because try translating science without, into English without Latin or Greek. It's really, it's really quite tough, but it can be done. The 21st century heroes of this movement are the English moot people. They have a, the English moot is basically the English Wikipedia, but Wikipedia has too much Greek in it, um, not to mention Hawaiian. Um, so, so the English moot, um, they mostly have articles about mathematics and geography at the moment, but this is one of their mathematics or telcraft article. A scoring is a thought which mainly stands for how muchness. So uh, a scoring is a number. Okay? Um, and, and they offer a lot of lovely English translations which, you know, they're not trying to re- revise Old English. They're trying to make modern Old English. Okay? So it's, it's a little bit different. It's not English, it's English. So there are opportunities to go forward and de-Frenchify English, and here's the real reason why we should do it, to get even. Because the Académie Française hates English. (laughs) They hate English so much that some of the words that they tell French people not to say are French words, like (laughs) vintage, but English people touch them, so they don't want them anymore. Okay? So in this case, it's don't use vintage, or however they would say it. Don't use vintage to mean for vintage clothing. You know, say clothing of the epoch, or something like that. Don't use that vintage because the English touched it. It's bad now. And this one I, I love. They, they want you to not use the word dedicacé to mean to dedicate, say, a book or a statue or something like that to someone. The thing about this is that what, the reason why English has that meaning of dedicate is because that was the original French word. But the French forgot about that meaning. They now use it for something else. The, the old French meaning is coming back from English. And the, the Académie Française is saying, but the English touched it, don't... <laughs> Don't, don't let it hear. So I just want to end by reminding you that the English are very good at fighting against the French, okay? <laughs> so good that you measure your wars in centuries, right? Well, this war is a thousand-year war, and I call you to arms. <laughs> Thank you.
Dr. Lynn Murphy there with Down With Romance. Formidable. <laughs> incredible. 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 That's the word I was searching for. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do so great at... At French at school. No, I was rotten at French. Uh, I gave it up because I didn't understand it. I couldn't understand the concept of a word where you don't pronounce half the letters that you're writing down. It just made me furious. So I did German, which is easy peasy. There's only about five words in German. You just have to put them together like yeah. Lego sets. My, 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 my reason is more pure. I, I, I spent most of my French lessons doodling genitals onto the uh, Did onto you? Jean-Paul and Claudette, who, <laughs> who were in our, you know, the, the, the cover stars of our French books. Well, we did, we did have a very lovely French teacher who, you know, and that was the other thing. I think all the 14-year-old boys were completely distracted by the loveliness of the French teacher and weren't listening to a damn word she was saying. All schools had lovely French teachers. Because we had a lovely French teacher. And the, I remember you? a story went around the school where she had overheard a boy call another boy a wanker. And, <laughs> right. um, Is that a French word? It, no, 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 it isn't. Right. And, he'd, and he'd complained and she'd looked at them and she said, but... Uh, why do you think it is bad to masturbate? And they thought, oh, my God, she's really cute and she's really progressive. Oh. <laughs> I've got to go. Lie down. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. It's funny. It is odd, that, isn't it? But And yet, strangely, we've never got any better at teaching French in this country. And it's, it's odd. That. It's half-baked, isn't it? Always. And it's it still is. I, my, my 14-year-old son... Uh, you know, he's he's the best in the class in French. Um, he still can hardly string a sentence together. He's been learning it since he was six. But then, I was then, exactly the same. To be fair, this this podcast episode is about the intrusion yes. of, uh, of well, French it's, it's into our inner the Englishness f- pushing against it. You see, because it, the, the fight back started early on. You know, obviously, ten sixty six, they all came in, didn't they? Came over here, took our jobs, built those castles. You know. Um, uh, but the start of Brexit was 1067 because um, no, it was Chaucer. Chaucer was the first man to write in the 12th century, I think it was, um, a, a major work of art in English, Canterbury Tales. It was Middle English. It, it's pretty hard to understand mm. now, but it was still recognisably English. Um, and that's very significant. Sowed the seeds of viz, didn't it? Elements well, it of, kind of did. I mean, well, the other thing is, of course, it's got a very a very non-French, so it's not terribly romantic, it's very smutty, and it's very funny. You know, it's full of, you know, uh, women sticking their asses out of windows uh, and getting, you know, it's carry-on. It's it loads is, it is of carry-on, carry yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so there is that, that, that persistent pushback against, um, if you like, the, the romantic um, forces. Uh, however, they're still dominant. They own... A recent study of, of, of who... It's very hard to find out in Britain who owns land. In, you know, if you go to the land registry, they won't tell you who owns what. It's never been made public. But the best we can manage has been through sort of partial surveys. And according to those, they think up to 95% of land in Britain is owned by people with Norman surnames, still to this day. You know, it's, uh, it reminds me of a, a story that um, Mike Harding... Told he's a big member. That's a of the... name from the past. Well, yes, he's a member of the Ramblers. Of course, for a long time, was president of the Ramblers Association. Yeah, which of course was was all about pushing back against landowners and getting rights of way. And uh, he tells a story of uh, of him rambling, and a very furious, very posh farmer, gentleman farmer, coming up to him and saying, "I say, look, you can't walk through here." He goes, "Well, yes, I can. It's a right of way. It's on the map. Look." He goes, "No, no, 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 no. no. It's not on the map." He says, "Well, there it is. There's the map." And he says, "No, no, you look here." This is my land, and it was my father's land before him. And it was his father's land before him. And it was his father's land before him. I think I know what I'm talking about. And, and uh, he said, 
so how did how did you, your great great grandfather get his land? Well, he got it from his great grandfather, and who did he get it from? Well, he fought a man for it, and he said, "All right, then." Put them up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. You know, our aristocracy is not our native aristocracy. Our native aristocracy ended with Hereward the Great, really. What we've got is an imported aristocracy. And and with the Windsors, or the Saxe-Coburgs, we've got a double imported Mm -hmm. uh, uh, aristocracy. And I don't understand why we put up with it. Here's my argument. If we want to have a massive windfall of money... Everybody else who's rich can run away with their money. The one group of people who can't are aristocrats and landowners. Why are we not having our own great terror? That's what I say. Get rid of them all and get that, and we could be we could be absolutely we could be working thirty hour weeks like the French. Why don't we do that? Uh, that's a good point, Dave. And and in fact, we would be encouraging listeners to start a campaign with us through Change.org or, or Thirty Eight Degrees to actually bring bring about. The, that social change um, that uh, the, the country so desperately needs, were it not for a more important campaign... Oh, we do have a more important campaign. ..that we would like to encourage listeners but to But that brings us in. to our biscuit of the week. It does indeed, and this biscuit was chosen by one of our listeners, Wally Wallet, uh, who said, um, you're on to season three and we still haven't had the lemon puff. Uh, please, Not c- quite true. You were killed by a lemon puff in one earlier episode. But... That might be in a future episode. Oh, we haven't decided we... where that's going to go in series three yet. <laughs> in so... which case... Quite true. Um, that was a spoiler. Yes. Um, <laughs> but Ignore I, what I just said. I do come back to life, listeners, so, yeah. so not to worry. Thank God. Um, it's not a terminal death. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's non-terminal It's an death. alternative death, yes. like an alternative fact. fact. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks to Wally for, for suggesting the lemon puff, but I'm afraid to say uh, to, to Wally and our other listener that we won't be, we don't have a packet of lemon puffs here in the studio with us for no, good reasons. Do you want to explain why? Okay. First of all, they do exist. There was, uh, it was long felt that they, they would have been withdrawn totally from the market. Become a mythical business. And I yeah. think they had for a while. But then they've come back, but they've come back in a different form. It's, it's like the Mandela effect of biscuits. Um, uh, there's a big discussion on Mumsnet about this. They, they've come back now, McVitie's and Jacobs uh, and Boland, I believe, have brought them back as a circular biscuit mm. rather than a square biscuit. Yeah. And the... Uh, <laughs> And the, the the it's not as flaky. The, you know, remember the, the tops being really flaky. Yeah, with lovely. The, yeah. With the glaze on. Yeah, they've not got a glaze on. So there's no glaze. There's not so much flake. It's more just a kind of lemon custard cream. Yeah, which is frankly not good enough. Not good enough. Absolute. You can fucking get atrocity. It is. It's probably the worst thing ever. Yeah. Um. And uh, it's worse than the aristocracy. It's worse than all land. that. Much worse than all that. Um. Because that means you know our children will never grow up. With that lovely sort of flaky, lemony, goodness, slightly sickly sort of thing yeah. that was no good for dunking or anything, you know. Uh, so we're campaigning to bring back the bad old. We days. are, and part of the reason for that campaign as well is that we've been utterly unable to find really any interesting history about the lemon puff. This is this is it has a, been excised from enigmatic the, biscuits. Yeah. Uh, you find them on forums. You know, there's a biker forum, long discussion about where to get the lemon puffs from. You know, which d- d- descends into homophobia very quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but there's there's you know it's hard. You can get them in other countries. They're very popular in the US and in places like Sri Lanka and things like that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the traditional ones now. And in fact, Sri Lanka. Uh, got into the Guinness Book of Records a couple of years ago, beating the previous biggest record for a custard cream biscuit, or a cream biscuit, I should call it. Um, in 2010, a British uh, couple of uh, lunatics 
made a custard cream that was 59 centimetres in length, 39 centimetres in width and 6.5 centimetres in height. But uh, the um, Maliban company, biscuit company of Sri Lanka, decided to beat that to celebrate the birthday of their founder. Um, And I think this was in 2012. And theirs was seven and a half feet long. Hang on, hang on. Did you say the first one was 59 centimetres? Yeah. So it's so it's gone it's gone from it's gone from like a foot and a bit to to seven foot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They decided to beat it by some distance. Yeah. <laughs> by by about six and a half feet. Yeah, they've made one seven foot five inches long, uh three feet nine inches wide. Uh, and they've not given the 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 so thickness. You could sleep on it, couldn't you? Well, apparently, it could serve a thousand and twelve people comfortably. So, I mean, that's yeah, it's, it's a bed sized biscuit. They've they've it's gone a bed for it. biscuit. It's yeah. a you put a mattress on that and sleep course, on it because lemon puff. It would be lovely and yeah. soft, wouldn't it? Ooh, I can see, <laughs> I can see a new career here. Are you having a Homer moment? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Bed biscuits, it's the future. Bed skit. And bed when you biscuits. get when you get no no problem with crumbs in the bed. And of course if, yeah, if you get the nibbles in the night. Well, well I suppose you'd want to eat your own bed, would you? You'd end up on the on the cream a lot. Yeah, yeah, you? yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's so, that is beating it by some that's like saying we we don't want this ever beaten. Absolutely. So uh so our campaign, we haven't got a competition uh for this podcast. We've no. got a campaign, and that campaign is to bring back the good old traditional the proper lemon puff, the, the square proper, glazed lemon absolutely. puff. Absolutely, and if and if listeners can, or if a particular listener can get a campaign to a certain tipping point of signatures, how many are we saying? Here? I think we're saying a million, aren't we? A million signatures. We're saying a million, a mi- yeah. so a million signatures to bring back the lemon puff. Then I think the prize, because they deserve a prize, even though it's not a competition, would be say your car. Um, okay. All right, all right, all right. Yes, my car. Yeah. Okay, they have to, you know, they have to prove they set it up. Yeah. And they have to prove there's a million signatures on it. And they can have my 15-year-old Audi A4 hmm. that's um, the uh, cam belt's going on. But they're welcome to it. Good. <laughs> Excellent. So... I will genuinely give that car away. <laughs> it's not that good a prize it's now, is it? It's not really worth much. <laughs> okay, so what, um, what should we give them instead? No, no, that's fine. No, they can have that. Okay. I mean, it's like worth 500 quid. I mean, for starting a campaign. I mean, I'm genuine about this. If you can get to a million signatures to bring back, which is some challenge. <laughs> that is some challenge. Well, it is. This is the first truly genuine offer on yeah. this show. I'm giving away that car. What do you mean first truly genuine offer? I mean, I mean one of many. <laughs> Eddie, that's out for a start, Andrew. <laughs> let's, not, let's not get any... Any doubts about um, so <laughs> the we veracity um, of our competitions? Uh, and uh, I think to tie it up nicely, we are now rambling, are. which was one of the principal subjects within the second half. It was. Mike Harding ramblers. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope that by now the podcast will have faded away. We're hoping it's faded. We're hoping by it's now. faded away by now because With otherwise work, you're listening to just nothing just but repeating. hot air. Yeah, literally just utter inane bollocks. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, fancy <a> shag. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Ernest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. 
If you like the auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available through Amazon and all good bookshops.